Well, this morning we're going to uh, read from Scripture two wonderful passages. Uh, first, first from the uh, book of Genesis, uh, words which will ring familiar, and then the concluding words of the Gospel of Mark. Again, words that I think with which you will find great familiarity. This is a Sunday when we do celebrate the Trinity. The Trinity is this large, complex, yet simple idea that God is three in one. This didn't come right away to the church. It's the church's attempt after, in its earliest years, after many centuries of understanding and living in a Christian community to describe what people are experiencing. The love of God made manifest in so many different ways. So it's not that we have three gods. There's one God, but that Divinity gets expressed in a variety of ways. So I would like to say, as we begin uh, this sermon, if there are young folks um, with you, uh, there will be a point in the sermon itself where we'll be talking about um, the taking of a human life. Um, and it may not, may, may not be something you want uh, your kids to hear, but I'll, I'll give you a highlight before we actually read that. It's a, it's a quote. Um, from Leo Tolstoy, from uh, David Brooks' uh, recent book, The Second Mountain. So, let us uh, read the word of scripture given to us by God. First, from the book of Genesis beginning at chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, when God created, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was a formless void, and the darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God separated the light from the darkness and saw that the light was good. Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. This blessing of all creation, which will continue uh, throughout the book of Genesis, every time God creates this sense expressed by God of the goodness, the wonder, the beauty of God's creation. Later on in chapter 1, God said, Let us make humankind in our own image, according to our own likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth. Hear that echo from our call to worship? and over everything that creeps upon the earth. And so God created humankind in God's own image. In the image of God, God created them, male and female. God created them. This is a bedrock, <coughs> excuse me, a bedrock principle of our tradition.
that in creation, God blesses, is pleased. God's heart is full to overflowing in the gift of creation. And <clears throat> this sense of our unity in God. Now, the Bible, of course, is not a scientific text. This is a religious text which teaches us the meaning and the power of our lives. It doesn't explain how creation happened, but in a sense addresses the question of why creation happens, and if that is so, then what are the implications for our lives? Ironically, or perhaps not ironically, perhaps fittingly, science has shown us that in fact we do come from one mother. In the Bible, she's of course called Eve. The person who is the mother of all of humanity, we know of her, not personally of course, but through the works of archeologists who have discovered the paleontologists who have examined the human remains of a human female who they dubbed Lucy. And if any of us goes on to one of the ancestry sites or does the chromosomal genetic studies, if we pursue them far enough, long enough, and with enough intricacy, we would discover that in fact each of us derives our life from the great rift valley that runs through eastern Africa. This great rift valley is the home, the beginning place of all humanity. And God who created all of us, beginning with Lucy, and then on down through the millennia to our own selves, wants us to live in that understanding of our unity in God and the God that we know through the ministry, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so from Matthew's Gospel, in the 28th chapter, the conclusion of Matthew's Gospel, after Jesus had been raised from the dead, he met his friends on a hill in Galilee, his disciples, where he had instructed them to meet him. And having met Jesus, this is what Matthew records. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Jesus, they worshiped him, though some still doubted. And Jesus came and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples, disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to follow everything that I have shown you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Some believed and yet some still doubted. Not surprisingly, no one really fully expected in the fullness of their hearts the kind of resurrection that had been accomplished in those days. And Jesus spoke to them and uses words which become familiar to us in the formula of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it's not the fully developed idea, but just this mystery of how God 
works in so many different and wondrous ways. But the key here, it seems to me, is that Jesus tells his disciples, who are all Jewish, Jesus is Jewish, he tells his disciples to go not just to Judea, the land of the Jews, but to go to all the world, the nations, as he says, go to all the peoples, all the different peoples in the world, to hear the good news of God in Jesus Christ, which is that God's love is for all people, this universal message about our unity in God, who is the father and mother of us all. This idea about our unity and the inherent dignity of each human person, which lies at the heart of the gospel, which of course, as we all know, has been so grievously and thoroughly uh, distorted and perverted in the long history um, of the world and particularly of our own nation in the historical vestiges of the racism which lie at the heart of the American story, um, coming to a land that was not empty, coming from Europe to the shores of North America where a large and vital and vibrant uh, culture of mul multiple cultures lived and engaging in activities, sometimes overtly lethal and oftentimes in inadvertently lethal, but always to the end of removing and establishing and expropriating the land and killing the native inhabitants of our shore. And then when the agriculture proved to be too daunting in Virginia, the purchase of Africans to make them into slaves, to build the wealth of the nation upon their backs and their unrequited toil. And how the church participated in this deep and troubling, tragic, sinful history, flying in the face of what the book of Genesis tells us, subverting and contravening Jesus' message that all people are to hear the good news that they are beloved of God, they, are dig they have the dignity of being God's child equal to and endowed with the same rights as any human being to come up with the idea that blacks and whites were inherently different and that blacks were inherently inferior. And ultimately in the early uh, 19th century, the idea that slavery is not a necessary evil, but coming up with the idea uh, promoted by John C. Calhoun, that slavery is a positive good. How did that happen? Where did that come from? But what, what is the genesis of that policy? that idea rather. The genesis of the ideas of the inferiority of one race, blacks to another, white, was to fulfill the uh, need of human beings to grasp and grab and control every element of their lives. It's greed, pure and simple. Um, it was a idea which took its uh, genesis out of the practice of enslaving people and in creating large architecture and of infrastructure of the inferiority of blacks, we are finding, as Andrew pointed out in his uh, poignant A Candle Witness, how this is all, in a sense, coming home to roost, even in our own day. 
this has been a very tough period for our entire nation, um, and particularly for African Americans, who are more heavily beset by the ravages of the coronavirus than any other people except the Navajo Indians um, in the far Southwest. Incidentally, not incidentally, not coincidentally, also people of color who have been historically uh, separated from and held back from uh, the benefits of citizenship in our nation. And so what do we derive uh, from this? What is, what is the future direction for us? For white people, it's to come to terms with the facts as they are, not as we would like them to be or as we think they are, but to come to, come to terms with the truth, to become awakened to the reality. And I think Andrew is right, that the generation that is coming behind me, behind us, so many of us, understands this in a way that we didn't until only very recently. I want to uh, share with you a, a very short uh, video that was produced by SALT, S-A-L-T. SALT is a um, ecumenical uh, website blog uh, that brings together culture and religion and uh, helps us get in touch, those of us who are white. People who are black do not need any uh, introduction to this fact, but people who are white need to hear uh, the experiences, the reality, expressed in very simple terms um, in this wonderful little video. Ten rules. Ten rules. Ten rules. Ten rules of survival. Ten rules of survival if stopped by the police. Number one, be polite and respectful when stopped by the police. Be polite. Be respectful. Remember that your goal is to get home safely. Your goal is to get home safely. Your goal is to get home safely. I'm sorry. Number two, if you feel your rights have been violated, you and your parents have a right to file a formal complaint with your local police jurisdiction. Number three, do not, under any circumstances, get in an argument with the police. Number four, always remember that anything you say or do can be used against you in court. Number five, Keep your hands in plain sight. Make sure the police can see your hands at all times. Number six, avoid physical contact with police officers. Do not make any sudden movements and keep your hands out of your pockets. Number seven, do not, do not, do not, do not, do not, do not, do not run, even if you are afraid. Even if you are afraid. Number eight, even if you believe you are innocent, do not resist arrest. Number nine, if you are arrested, do not make any statements about the incident until you are able to meet with a lawyer or public defender. Number 10, stay calm and remain in control. Watch your words. Watch your body language. Watch your emotions. Remember. Remember. Remember, your goal is to get home safely. Get home safely. Get home safely. For many of us who are descended from European 
ancestors uh, don't have to worry about getting home safely. But in fact, African descendants do. Regardless of how high they might rise in society and academia or in business or social status, every black person in America lives with the knowledge that they can be subject to violence, often lethal. A brief excerpt from a column in this week's Christian Century by Dorothy Sanders Wells, who is a Episcopal rector in Germantown, Tennessee. She writes, few people know the name Michael Donald. I know that name because he was lynched in my hometown of Mobile, Alabama, in 1981. Reverend Wells goes on to recount how, in fact, as a teenager, she had grown up with Michael Donald. They were in the same high school together, separated by one year. And he was lynched in 1981. She remembers the virulence of the violence in which Trayvon Martin and Clementa Pickney and the eight members of Emanuel AME, Botham Jean and Ahmed Aubrey, most recently George Floyd, killed because they were black. She writes in, for all the 400 years that this land has been inhabited by people of European descent and people of color alike, Faithful people have tried to justify the separation and the segregation, the subjugation of blacks. Some Christians have used the Bible to defend slavery and ideas of racial purity. But there is a difference between the Bible describing something and condoning it. Our scriptures acknowledge the sinfulness of our human hearts our tendency to deny the image of God, the Imago Dei, the image of God who created us in God's image, other people, our unwillingness to follow the commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves. Instead, we deem our neighbors who are others, who are different, who are black, as intruders and threats. I now pray that Christians will begin to live more like Jesus and call out acts of injustice when we see them until such time when Christians and others alike are able to recognize that our collective fate rests in the well-being of each person. Or as Dr. King said, if somebody's not free, nobody is free. This is that critical moment in our life. This is a moment when we cannot go back, as Andrew said, to the old normal, but must be actively engaged in building a new normal. They said last week, if not us, who? If not now, when? 
This is the message of the Trinity, that the differences in which God works is not, a, not an indication of different gods, but the unity of God that finds expression in so many different ways. Our identity as the children of God, one to another and all in God, and our commission as Christians to go out and to preach the good news, which is God's love, not some empty hope for the future notion, but the reality of God's love and care and commitment, the dignity of every human being, white, black, brown, yellow, red. There is no difference other than skin tone. Our hearts beat the same way, our brains work the same way, our souls desire the same thing. And to come to terms and to understand sometimes that something is just simply wrong. Leo Tolstoy, one of the great minds of the Western world who called himself to account and was always trying to improve himself, had an experience um, when he was in Paris. And David Brooks quotes Tolstoy about his experience. And this is the part uh, that kids maybe don't want to listen to. Tolstoy had an experience that persuaded him that there is a good which is far greater than any intellectual knowledge or rational examination can reveal. It was an absolute truth, something that is self-evident, a phrase from our own Declaration of Independence, truths which are self-evident, not revealed by human reason, but simply exist. Tolstoy was in Paris when he witnessed an execution. He wrote, when I saw how the head was severed from the body and heard the thud as it fell into the box, I understood, not with my intellect, but with my whole being, that no theories or rationales could justify such an act. I realized that even if all the people on the earth found this action to be necessary according to whatever theory or ideology they might have, I knew that it was not necessary and that it was wrong. Therefore, my judgments must be based on what is right and necessary and not on what people say or do. This truth, David Brooks, wonderful, wonderful book, The Second Mountain. Okay. This is what we have to come to terms with. White people have to come to terms with to recognize the truth, to no longer rationalize or excuse, but to embrace our identity, to recognize that our relationships are who we are. If we restrict our relationships with only with those who look like us, we diminish ourselves. If we live in a world where we only allow certain rights and privileges to those who look like us, 
if we don't recognize and come to terms with the fact that our relationships are who we are, just as God is who God is in a relationship, we are relationships are who we are. And we make that inner change, that soul work, that deepening of our consciousness, or perhaps the raising of our consciousness, then God's vision and hope for humanity might be fulfilled. That God's dream of justice and its fruit, which is peace, will come to be. Amen.